Mind Body Connection podcast. The Body and Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Mind Body Connection podcast. Today, I've got Linda Fisher Hoyer all the way from Norway, and, and I bumped into her on Clubhouse when she was talking eloquently about uh, her PhD, which looked at some of the important questions we've been looking at on the podcast, all about the mind body connection and why there is this disconnect in, uh, in we- particularly westernized culture about it and where that comes from and what we need to do about it. So um, we're very lucky to have her here today because she's going to be talking us through some of the stuff that's going on in the whole world of the mind-body connection and the philosophy and the arguments and debates around it. So welcome, Linda. Thanks for taking your time to be here. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, always fun to come and talk about things that I find interesting and can sit and nerd nerd on about (laughs) and uh, actually have other people be interested as well that's right so start maybe start off by telling us about you uh, what brought you into this area what's where's your interest lie yeah so it started off basically um when i was uh, an undergraduate student studying psychology and had this kind of niggling question about okay so we're talking about mental illness we're talking about the mind but what is it I kind of and my personality is very much like I want to find out how things work and I want to unpick them and kind of look at all the tiny little parts and this question about kind of what is the mind and how do we make sense of it and how do we make sense of kind of all of this the things that we're talking about in psychology basically when we can't really look at it um, and wanting to have a proper understanding and grasp of that so those questions kind of um pushed me further and further into philosophy, basically, because I couldn't, that I didn't find a satisfying model in psychology um, for what the mind was. And kind of was thinking, okay, so if we go down to uh, psych- uh, philosophy and have a look at the metaphysical kind of ideas, maybe we'll get a good answer there. And then we can bring back it that in, kind of bring that back into psychology and yay we've solved all the problems uh that was a very naive uh so what were the what were the problems within psychology that you you felt hadn't been addressed by the the models and conce- conceptions of the mind what what did you find was missing so yeah so most importantly the disconnect between the mind and the brain of like how do we actually see them fitting together and so you kind of have these ideas um Let's see, we have these ideas in in neuroscience that you can kind of see what the mind is thinking, but we can't really. We're looking at something different. So I was unsatisfied with kind of, okay, when we're looking at scans from like MRI scans and seeing what the brain is doing, we are looking at kind of physical reactions and things that are happening, but we're not looking at thoughts. And I wasn't satisfied with the kind of the idea of what thoughts were and that idea that can actually, if it's if we have a, if we have a causally closed physical world where you just have kind of A leads to B leads to C and that understanding of causation, then you can't really understand what thoughts have to do with it or how you can override that. Can you have a top-down causation? So that is kind of in philosophy is what we call the problem of mental overdetermination, that you have too many then causes on that one effect. Um, and that was kind of the, the main thing of like not knowing how do we 
fit that in. So in, in the way and the language that we're trying to describe what human nature is, we have um, a kind of impoverished view where we can't make sense of, of meaning or thoughts or ideas or anything that we can't weigh or measure. And that is kind of what I was trying to figure out. How can we, how can we understand that and how can we fit that in to our, our models and our understanding of what it is to be human being? Yeah, because when we do stuff like fMRI scans, which, which are kind of a short, short code for that's what your brain's thinking, what they often are doing is things like looking at blood flow. So they say, yeah. well, there is more blood flow in that area. Therefore, that area is working harder. Yeah. Therefore, there are thoughts there. But there, there's a little jump at that last sentence where it's like, well, we know the brain's working more, but we can't see the thoughts. We can only see the activity of the area. And that's, that's that problem you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. And then if we have a feeling or like at least our experience is that when we think of something, it moves us forward or motivates us. So why, why do we think that? And is that actually true? Or is it just then everything is predetermined because when you fire off that one set of neuron, it, everything just falls into place because it's meant to be, or can we actually override that? And that's kind of where I didn't find any, um, we, we find lots of descriptions but no kind of of what's happening or where we can see that our mind interacts and can over kind of have this top down causation happening, but we didn't have any good explanations. So I wanted to see how can we have have better explanations for what's happening. Right. So you obviously came up with the answer in your PhD. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> uh, I wish. Um, no, but so, so what I then did was go into philosophy and see, can we, can we there find any answers or ways of thinking about this that can help me in psychology? Um, and, and unfortunately, there aren't really any simple, simple answers. Um, and I found that philosophy of mind. So when I was doing my, my master's degree in, um, in philosophy, mind, neuroscience and psychology, I didn't, there weren't any good answers there. I just saw that there's a debate here that's quite kind of, it's come to a dead end. And that's kind of what spurred me on to do my, my PhD work in this. And what we see is we have different ways of trying to explain the mind-body interaction, um, both non-reductive ways, so ways that want to kind of say that the mind is real in some sense. And you have also reductive ways that want to say that the mind is irrelevant or not there or just a myth or something that we don't really need to think about. We'll have and, it, and it's not there because we can't see it. That, yeah. That kind of position, isn't it? And then so kind of all the way from kind of limited materialism where you have Paul and Patricia Churchland going that the mind is just, it's just language that we're using and it doesn't reflect reality. And just like we don't explain uh, things happening in the weather now with, with Thor riding across the sky, we will stop uh, explaining what happens with the mind with these kind of mind words or feeling words. They'll kind there, of there we go for more. It's it's in just a neuron or a neurotransmitter, and that's all it is. There's nothing yeah. to it than that. Yeah. So that kind of would be the one extreme where you go from saying I'm happy today to saying, oh, my serotonin and oxytocin, like our chemistry levels are are higher today. So they will kind of say that there will be a change in how we talk about it because we'll find the proper explanations. Well, all the way on the other end, you will have people saying, no, there is still a mind. It is still relevant and it's active. It has some kind of uh, agency in our world. Um, and they will have different ways of trying to explain that all the way to kind of like 
complete dualism, where you have the mind and the body as two separate things interacting. And so Richard Swinburne would be one of those who kind of go all the way there. And then you have kind of all the degrees in between who are trying to find different ways of including uh, consciousness and the mind as part of the world we're in. Um, so, and part of what I saw is that not very few of them have kind of very satisfying descriptions and all of them have very valid complaints towards the person they're opposite. And part of what the common denominator is for all of these um, theories is that they have still the same view of matter. So what it is something physically is, they have still a similar view of causation, what, how one thing causes the other. And they have a similar view of what the mental is, even though they might say it exists or doesn't exist, they still define it as some similar properties and they have a similar view of reality and the self. There are some common denominators there. So what I kind of proposed in my, uh, in my doctoral work was that these um, common denominators might be part of the issue. And do we take for granted this way of describing matter? Do we take for granted this way of describing um, causation? Or can there be other ways of putting this together? And that's where you kind of start going into more metaphysical questions about how is the world put together? What, what are the smallest building blocks of reality? And so how do so uh, you use the word metaphysical there. There'll be some people listening who'll go, what does that actually mean? Do you want to just describe that? Yeah, I can do that. So metaphysics is um, is a discipline in philosophy or a part of, of a stream in philosophy which wants to look at what is reality built up of, what are the building blocks of reality and how do we put them together and how do we... So we have this reality that we see in front of us, but how do you actually carve out the different parts of it and, and explain it? And they have different ways of doing that. So it's kind of like um, a big dot-to-dot -dot picture where you can draw different drawings and kind of connect different dots, and then you'll see different things in the reality that you're in. So metaphysics is that trying to describe reality, basically. Okay. Mm. So in your, in your brilliant um, study of this, <laughs> where did you end up? So you so, noticed that people had lots of different opinions, uh, had mm. some value in what they said, particularly when they opposed other people going, you're wrong for these reasons. And you noticed they all shared a certain worldview of things. And you thought, well, we need to look at this differently. So well, yeah, where did that lead you? Yeah, so basically it led me to like a big question of, okay, so why did we end up thinking this way at all? How did we get to this point of, of stuckness and trying to go back and look through um, the different problems. So, and then kind of in that process, realizing that this is quite a modern Western way of constructing the world and constructing reality and understanding what human nature is like. So I kind of went into a more um, historical approach, I guess, looking, tracing the ideas, um, looking at how do we turn to this understanding of materialism that we understand matter as something that can be weighed and measured and, and that we can see and observe that that is what is real rather than having reality include all the things that we can't weigh and measure. 
Yeah. yeah which is, I'm just going to pause there for a minute because that's such an interesting question uh, and we don't want to jump over it too quickly because we do live in this kind of westernized material modeled world where you know we measure and weigh things and pay for things by by weight and but we also do inhabit a world where we experience emotions and sensations and all these kind of things which we forget don't quite fit into that world and this is the fundamental question that you're looking at so so yeah so it's really important so where so tell us more about how we got here how do we get to this place where because that's not how most people operate is it most people don't operate completely materially and go everything apart from things i can weigh and measure have the meaning to me that's yeah. not how we operate so how did we get lulled into this version of the world um so again like that's a, a it's a lot story but trying to make it short part of what happens and and this is really not to blame Descartes for everything in the world that is evil because it's he, <laughs> he has wonderful uh, wonderful writings and has explained why the rainbow is as it is so that's kind of um he has brought good things into the world but what he what he does when he redefines um reality into thinking substance and into material substance is that he he takes what we have understood as being one thing, which is a more Aristotelian and atomistic metaphysics and understanding, and he divides them out into kind of matter, something that we can weigh um, and measure, and into that we can't. And this is really, it's really important and really helpful because it has given us a lot of progress in terms of like scientific discoveries, because you can suddenly start going about um, making hypothesis and kind of testing things out and measuring it and comparing it and understand it gives us a way of kind of or a method of finding more out about the world but then again everything that we can't weigh and measure we still can't explain and that has so, kind of so was he was he the first guy to come up with this i know he's kind of you know the line in the sand but nobody thought about this before is it no yeah no he's not he's not the first first guy he he is the first one who does it and it kind of coincides with this kind of um, scientific method in that way which makes it kind of um, prominent in a different way but this is also the same um, kind of the, it's the same thing that you find in early Greek kind of philosophy as well you have this understanding of matter and atoms and 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 that way of kind of viewing the world but it's not the same because they don't necessarily have that complete dualistic uh, way of separating the two. And even Plato doesn't have that. So even though he also would separate kind of the world of ideas and the, the material world, he doesn't do it in the same way as Descartes does. He doesn't define the features differently. Um, and and um, often you don't see that at first glance, but that would be kind of, again, more going into detail about that. Because he, because he, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, yeah. but he was a really interesting guy, wasn't he? Because one of the things he was looking for was the seat of the soul. And that's one of yes. the things he spent a lot of time looking for, which he thought, I think, was in the pineal, I think he thought. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't like, as far as I can read, it wasn't like he dismissed the mental world or the spiritual mm -hmm. the soul world. He was quite interested in that. So it wasn't yeah. like he was trying to go, that's not important, this is important. And that's often what people interpret it from, isn't it? Yeah, no, so he didn't. So his, his main thing was actually to try and defend the soul. Like that was, and defend eternal life and that we could have eternal, like that was part of his uh, opening statement. And whether that is just kind of something he did to appease the religious authorities at the time, or if that was his actually kind of 
what he was driving him is hard to it's hard to say but the the other thing that is kind of interesting with this way for Descartes to divide up both like the mental realm and the physical realm is it happens also with this turn from the soul to the self so while in the early Greek philosophy you didn't have this sense of inner self that was there was no um inner you that was kind of apart from your body so for if you had gone to Aristotle and told them about the whole kind of freaky Friday body swapping uh, experiments where you can be me in another body he would have been like no no that's not possible because your body defines who you are you connect with that so once you have a different body you are a different person you can't you can't separate that out but what happens with with Descartes and kind of that coinciding change of ideas from um, going to see that we have a soul that is separate from our bodies or this idea and that we have some inner space and this is what we find in in Plotinus and some of the kind of Augustine, uh, some of the other kind of these ideas start coming up that you have, you can turn inwards and upwards to find God. And then you suddenly have this sense of inner self that you can have this private room. And then that becomes something different from your body. From, so you can kind of think about thinking or these, and, and that means that when you have Descartes separating the two, you suddenly think of yourself or your mind as something apart from your body. And you can have these kind of thought experiments that you can change bodies with someone, or you can wake up one day with someone else's body. That would have been a completely foreign concept and not like does not compute concept earlier. So, so that's kind of another shift that happens there that you have that kind of shift in how we understand materialism, the shift from the soul to the self, and this kind of turn inwards where you start having this um, way of introspecting, which gives you this private inner space. And one of the effects of this is the, this, this journey into separating the mind and body, and then the, that showing up in health yeah. and our conception of all that. Do you want to talk a bit yeah. about that? So then we kind of, we've separated it out all the way to the point that we have different wards in the hospital where you have kind of the somatic healthcare and mental healthcare. And then we try and bridge it again with like subjects like psychoneuroimmunology, which is trying to explain the connection between uh, like all of them. We're trying to kind of bridge that gap again, but it wasn't necessarily always there. And that's kind of where I went on in my, in my research to look at, okay, if it hasn't always been like this, if we haven't always thought this way, what are some non-Western kind of pre-Cartesian ways of thinking? And that took me into uh, Aristotle's metaphysics and how it's rewritten by Thomas Aquinas, but also Buddhist metaphysics, because here are two different ways of describing reality and describing the world and what this is to be a human being that doesn't have that divide. They talk about matter in a different way, they talk about causation in a different way, and they talk about just reality in whole, in the, as a whole in a different way. And that means if you start using one of those two frameworks, things look very differently again. So do you want to talk us through that a little bit? Um, are, they, are they very similar, Those because they're different, very different parts of the world where they're influenced by each other? So Buddha mm. was around, I think, two and a half thousand years is that right? Two, 2,000 years yeah. Is that right? 
uh, and Aristotle. When was he kicking around? Yeah, he's. I'm terrible at remembering numbers. <laughs> I think it's a bit younger, but I don't think there's huge amounts of, of time between the two. Yeah. Um, were they influenced? Are they similar? What are the core things that you. Okay. I'm just going to look here at my notes of it. So, so there is. There is a similarity in that they they don't um, divide reality in the same like they they have a different way again like of understanding matter and causation um, and I think kind of the the one of the main things is that the way they understand causation is for both both of these frameworks is they don't think of causation as being like A leads to B. They have many more um, aspects that come into play for one thing to lead to another. So they have more of a kind of network approach to causation where there are several things that need to be present for the next thing to happen. And this um, this idea of, of more kind of a network uh, understanding of reality of things being connected and not being so clear-cut and simple and neat always is one of the big things that I think uh, means that both of these frameworks can deal with complexity in a different way or help us kind of carry a more complex understanding of human nature so I think that may be one of the main that's very interesting because I was I was talking to who was it now I think in series one someone was talking about in medicine they have what's called specific factors and non-specific factors so if you have a drug um, it will have an effect due to the chemicals in it that's the specific factor but they also now are recognizing there are other factors like um, the warmth of the room that you got it in the color of the pill how much you like that person the non-specific factors that are nothing to do with the chemicals but will have an effect so that kind of models a little bit about what you're saying it's not this and, and david hamilton said it in another interview he said that you put substance a and substance b in a test tube at a certain temperature and a certain pressure it will do the same thing every time you put that in the body and it starts to do different things and that, yeah. that it, we are a complex system and applying kind of quite a simplistic causation model is going to be problematic in certain places is that is that what you're saying is this yeah. <clears throat> this is the kind of correlate is how it yeah exactly exactly that so so you'll have different things so um aristotle and aquinas will talk about kind of five different points of causation so one being that a leads to b and then they will have other things like um uh, telos so the thing what the what you in essence are aimed towards or your kind of the intention of that your essence is is going to be another thing that is going to be part of it um so they'll they'll have kind of different ways of describing it so form is one thing uh, so that what kind of form you have the actual matter that is there is one thing and then you have the kind of causal causation understanding so so one way of um explaining this and I'm going to see if I can get, get this right because it's been a while since I actually talked about this example um, is say with a with a cup you have the cup's form which is kind of a hollow shape so it can carry liquid but what it is made of the matter that makes up the cup could be different so you could have something made of paper something made of glass something made of ceramics or even just your hands and that would kind of give it some different attributes depending on what the cup was made of. But the intention of the cup of being something to drink from would be the same. 
but you could still also use the cup for different things like holding pens and pencils. So, so all of these things kind of come into play when you're then looking at what the cup is being used for. And that is also then one of the things that is a central question, both for the Buddhist um, framework and also a framework of Thomas Aquinas is what is the being and what is being? becomes a, a real question rather than starting with this divide of what is matter and what is mental. Um, and that is also really interesting to me when you can start the question somewhere else. Can I just go back to that statement um, or that question, what is being? Yeah. Uh, can you just say a bit more about that? Because I quite often get stuck with that and going, what do they actually mean by what is being? Uh, can you just give us a bit more examples of what that means, what that question is where you'd apply that question to so, so people listening will go oh yeah, i get that does that make sense the question yeah no it does make sense it's just i'm trying <laughs> trying to see if i can make a sensible answer uh, <laughs> um so in, in in reference to our cup yeah uh, who's a, a good metaphor yeah so what would the being question be about that, that so what is, is a cup or how do we define a cup or could anything be a cup what's the how do we make it a question that, that feels more complete than what is being? Yeah. So again, like that, what, what is being then when you kind of look at the cup, there is, when you kind of, kind of, when you come to it from a more reductionistic view, you might kind of look at the cup and go, oh, the cup is just made up of these molecules and atoms and, then at some point of level, you might kind of, there might be emerging some properties of the cup that makes it what it is, but ultimately it is just the building blocks. If you're coming from it, um, coming at that question, what is being, and you're looking at the cup from uh, Aristotelian perspective, it might not be relevant to consider what the atoms or molecules are, because you're looking at what the function of the, of the object in front of you has. And, and in order to kind of properly describe that, you will have to have different parts, um, different kinds of explanation to find a proper holistic understanding of that thing. So yes, you might kind of say it's, it's a container for something, it's hollow, so you can put something inside it, or you might want to say something about the material it's made of. You might want to say what something about the intention the maker had uh, there. Or, or what kind of um, function it has. So you have kind of an Aristotelian perspective would then say to answer the question, what is being, you have to consider more things than just the mere building blocks of that thing, because that would be just a slither of reality you're describing. Okay. And, and, is, you... and is there a, a, an agreed answer that we uh, we have found enough of the pieces to say to be able to describe its being like or is it is there no end to that question that we can never actually completely describe its being um because we could go uh you know the cup yeah. is this color and it was made by a nice gentleman in verona many years ago who had 17 wives and and, and all that's important and it's been used for all these liquids and all that all that has to be included is that yeah. is that is that one one position that we would have to know the totality of that mm. cup in so, order to fully understand it which would be obviously impossible but is that, yeah. is, that a, is that the kind of most extreme position if the reductionist position is it's just made of these atoms and that's it 
at the other end of the spectrum is everything. Yeah. So there, so there is, and I think that's kind of part of what metaphysics does is trying to kind of say when have you asked enough questions and kind of <laughs> what is that? How do you how do you know that you know enough? Um, so so different kind of different schools in metaphysics will have different answers to that. And if there is a, um, one way of understanding, or kind of one common way of understanding it, I, I not not to my <laughs> kind of not to my awareness, but. Um, I think at least what Aristotelian and Buddhist metaphysics does is show that there is definitely more questions to ask than just how kind of what solidity of this object is there and what part of the chain of causation is it positioned. Thank you very so, much for asking that very tricky question. And the reason I was asking it was just to kind of expand on this idea of being and, and I think also bring it back to kind of this reality yeah which is in, in health for instance the cause of the simple cause like this causes that model it doesn't work that well sometimes it does you know i've got myself around bleeding you know sometimes it's really useful if eating this poison it's killing me um yeah. but uh more holistic view is often very useful but there is also a point where we need to stop asking questions because otherwise we'll never actually move on to starting to do anything so it's i think it's an interesting question on expanding but you could end up in a massive rabbit hole just trying to get all the information about everything you can and i think there's that kind of if you if you're looking at a simple thing like a broken leg then it can be enough to say kind of look at what has happened like what is the event that caused the brokenness because that might be interesting for several reasons to be able to fix the injury or to prevent harm happening again and it's important information to know kind of um, that is just what has actually physically happened. But once you start getting into more complex health problems where you can't necessarily see what has gone wrong or understand all the complexity around it, or where, say, um, it being defined as an illness isn't clear cut. So it can either be that you have, um, say, the level of um, tyroxine in your blood is between this range. And if you're over or above, you're either kind of uh, low or high, but that kind of the, the interval there isn't necessarily set as like, that's right for everyone across everywhere. There's also politics involved there because if you if you go above or below that reference uh, window, then you have to start giving medication out, or at least that's what it's like in Norway. So, so then it's suddenly like how you diagnose things or how you treat things, you're not just kind of looking at the individual variances within a body, or what the person's uh, history or upbringing has been like and how that affects them or how they respond to the kind of placebo effect of medicine, all of, like, all of these things. You're also looking at political uh, kind of decisions for who gets treatment or not, financial kind of um, responsibilities that have to be accounted for of who's gonna pay for this. And so you there's just so many more things involved in just a simple, is it broken, let's fix it kind of approach. So what, Ar what Aristotle does is he says there are four kind of causes and that's, so that's where he draws the line in terms of like how many questions do we ask to understand what this is. And then he has um, an idea of everything that exists is this combination of form and matter. 
And then he has lots of kind of interesting stuff on what something's essence is and what it is to go from one form to another form. Um, but then again, that's kind of a, a different realm of uh, topics to explore. Really. And, uh, and the Buddhist side, did they have a similar model or was there any kind of crossover between those? Yeah, so they will they will have um, they will have a different different model. But again, so this is this is now several years ago since I wrote the the Buddhist metaphysics part of it. So I'd have to kind of refresh more of it. But they do have um, again this kind of network idea where they have different things that make up what it is to be a human being, um, and it's not they're all kind of interconnected. And again, interconnected not just with me, but with the rest of reality as well. So there is much more sense of um, that that distinction between you and me and the things that are around us isn't there in the same way that we that we Westerners think of it as being me being different from my chair from the tree outside, because they have a different again understanding of what reality is as not being necessarily separate objects around, but more a connectedness in a completely different way. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because that's so the opposite of the split internally between the mind and the body. They yeah. don't really have that, and they don't really have this separation between us and everything else in reality. Yeah, yeah. and also just like in, in terms like how they then in reality would register time as well is different. And then again, like the whole concept of of suffering is when you're trying to actually hold on to things and compartmentalize things and say this is the thing that I want now rather than just letting it kind of flow through you so and that again is very is very foreign for us because especially in the modern western world we're so used to thinking of things and me and you and kind of having that sense of of, of difference and separation and even upholding that sense of of difference. Well I, I often think about Heraclitus or Heraclitus, depending on how you want to say it, and his idea of um, this sense of flow and transience. I don't know if you know about his, I'm sure you do. We yeah. talked about this idea, you can never step in the same river twice. And he, and he used to make this little drink. I can't remember how you pronounce it now, but it was, it was made, it sounds disgusting, it was made of wine and rotten cheese um, and, and I think barley, barley flour. And the thing about the drink was, those three things don't mix. You know, you've got yeah. your cheese, you've got your wine, you've got your body fat. And so the only way you could drink it was you had to stir it so that everything became a kind of a drink and then you drank it. And so they talked about, he talked about the idea that it doesn't exist apart from when it's in motion. When it's not in motion, it doesn't have any existence. And, and this idea of the, the permanence and thingness of things that it's more about in this moment, it is in this shape and form. So I think that's kind of interesting. Well, that again, there's a parallel between that Greek position and more Buddhist positions as well. Yes. So coming back to um, reality 2021, <laughs> um, yeah. what, what have you learned from this? Uh, how does this apply to you? How do you think about the world body connection? We're coming full circle, so you haven't gone on that. What well, sounds like a really fascinating journey. Um, yeah. What's, what's shown up for you as a result? How's life different? How do you think about a healthy body as a result? What lessons could we all learn from this? So I think one um, one thing, and I, I guess that's just tying back to your kind of the the, um, the drink of like where something is just existing when it is in motion, is that there is 
there is a potentiality for anything in in kind of everything that is there like a, like a seed and that is also part of the buddhist notion of like pregnant potentiality before something has become actual you have this type of pregnant potentiality where it could be anything but once it's actually happened this is what it is but it's not going to be stable last forever it will move on to the next thing and and that is what you see as well in when aristotle talks about this idea of actuality and potentiality and how one pushes the next thing forwards and for me just personally that has been um, a freeing way of thinking it because that means when I am ill I know it's not going to last forever it's it's now but it's not forever and in this illness there is a potentiality to be something else and something more so I have a, a chronic illness called Hashimoto which is an autoimmune disease and I like to think of it as my Japanese sensei talking, teaching me how to rest and how to listen to my body and, and, and then kind of being grateful that I have actually got something physically in me reminding me to do that because everyone needs to rest and everyone needs to learn how to cope with stress and eat um, and eat regularly. But having that, uh, for me, that kind of physical thing in my body, yes, it is an illness and it makes me kind of have days where I'm, I'm not functioning optimally, but at the same time, it's something precious and there's something that I, I can use to kind of uh, help me flourish in life. So I think that's the thing of like seeing what is the potential lying in the actuality or the reality that you have and letting that always push you forward and, and towards something. And I, I think that's the other idea of like having this idea of telos or something that is meaningful that you're moving towards. And, and that there is always this constant idea of growth and flourishing and change. So even though it hurts to change because you're basically having to rid yourself or die in some part of you, there is this element of new life, kind of new life coming forward and being excited about that. So those are kind of some ideas that I've, I've um, been able to explore or find kind of through, through looking and reading all the things that I've done that I actually use every day and it, improves how I how I live or my quality of life mm. fantastic I really really enjoy talking to you today about these things um which I think uh although they are quite out there and quite philosophical I think they are really important to our because because those old philosophies and they are relatively old Descartes you know it's quite quite a long time ago now mm. are still structuring and forming and shaping how decisions are made how people conceptualize illness so i think it's really important to kind of recognize that 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 wasn't all, always how it was there were some problems with that and that and that we need to maybe move somewhere new or maybe somewhere old and yeah. bringing all the value from what what we've got from descartes but also recognizing there are limits to it so thank you so much for spending time chatting for me this morning i'm uh, thank you for having me. Uh, and i'm glad it's reminded you of some of those things you wrote back in the day when you were studying yeah. hard over your phd thank you very much Linda. good to speak to you and we'll see you again soon Take care. yes bye-bye thank you Thanks for having me the mind body connection podcast the body and mind